Amen. When you don't actually look at the screen, you just hear the music. It's kind of cool. Cool music. Well, it's great to see you this morning. It's, uh, it's a good day to examine the truths of the good news. Today, we're going to look at the most famous conversion story, really, in history. Morgan has already shared with us in the family ministry time the kind of the basics of that amazing story of the transformation of this fanatical zealot pursuing Christians to their death. The transformation of that man to the man who wrote or who, in, with his team, wrote the majority of the New Testament. Paul himself, of course, wrote so many of the letters of the New Testament. The, the cornerstone of theology that we find in the New Testament is, is something that comes out of the heart of Paul. And then Luke, a member of his team, wrote the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, probably so that when Paul was facing people who were bringing charges against him before Caesar had documents for his defense. And so, in many ways, the Acts of the Apostles may well be the documents for the defense that Paul and his team used as he faced the charges of the Jewish authorities before Caesar. And so this man is a central character in the formation of the Christian faith. He was a murderer. He was a fanatical hater of God's people. And that person became this central figure in our faith. The conversion of Paul is so emblematic, so so significant that it has passed into popular consciousness. Today, people still speak about a Damascus Road experience. But it's a, it's a fascinating thing that even though we recognize this amazing event, we rarely consider the theology that came out of the encounter with Jesus that Saul had. Because in that encounter, the New Testament, the theology of the New Testament, was fashioned and formed. There, in the fire of the revelation of Jesus to Saul, all of the truths that you see in the epistles of Paul, in the gospel of Luke, in the Acts of the Apostles, all were fashioned and formed and finally came to full flower in that person's life. So today we're going to look a little deeper at the conversion of Paul, conversion of Saul, and we're going to ask ourselves, how did the theology emerge from that moment of revelation? Is there something in the text that will help us do that? And to do that, we're going to go beyond the, the, the straightforward testimony that we find in, in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to develop a binocular vision. We're going, to, we're going to look at this testimony here in the Acts of the Apostles, which 
again is, is repeated twice through the Acts of the Apostles, once when Paul is speaking to the public in Jerusalem and another time when he's speaking to King Agrippa. We're going to look at that testimony and then we're going to ask ourselves, is there something else that Paul speaks about in his epistles that will give us greater insight as to what it was that was revealed to him as he made his way to Damascus? We're going to look at two texts together. We're going to bounce from one to the next. And as we do that, we're going to develop a 3D vision of what it is that God wanted to reveal to Saul and what it is that God wants to reveal to you and I. Let's read from Acts chapter 9 and verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveled. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days, He was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias. Come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? So, here we have this remarkable story, a story that you've heard many times over, a story that details the events of Saul, accompanied by a few assistants, on his way 
in headlong pursuit of Christians, the people of the way. Jesus described himself as the way, the truth, and the life. He invited people to follow him. There was always a sense of journey about being a disciple of Jesus. And so the people of Jesus were people of the journey. They were people of the way. They were people who had a particular way, a particular path, a particular road, a narrow path, a path of difficulty and hardship, but a path that everyone knew was a significant path. The word way in Greek, hodos, is, of course, the basis of that name for the second book of the Bible that details the escape from slavery of the people of God, ex-hodos. The people of hodos, the people of the way, the people of a particular kind of living, the people of a, of a particular kind of savior were people who were escaping slavery and finding freedom in Jesus. Those people were the people that Saul, later Paul, was pursuing to death. And of course, in his headlong pursuit, he ran into Jesus. Not something that uh, anyone, I think, would recommend, given that Jesus is the Lord of creation. And in his headlong pursuit, this irresistible force meets an immovable object. And of course, we all know who wins. We discover that that irresistibility is not quite as irresistible as it used to be. And so Saul is knocked to the ground. Flashing light is all around him. The voice of Jesus addresses him by name, indicating that, that, that he is known, that he is understood, that he is someone with whom Jesus is intending to do business. Jesus always addresses us by name. He never addresses us as someone distant or unfamiliar. He knows each of us. And he knew Saul. And he knew the angst in his soul in desiring to do the right thing, to ever be presenting himself as righteous before God. He knew the years of of privation and discipline that he, had, that he had embraced in the rabbinic schools. He knew the immense intellect that he had given him that was first displayed at the feet of Gamaliel. This young man, in all of his zeal and intellect, Jesus knew him from head to toe, from inside to out and addressed him by name and said, why are you persecuting me? Now we've looked at this before and we've mentioned it before and it's tremendously important that we recognize that in that moment, 
the seed of revelation that would become the teaching in the New Testament called the church as the body of Christ is first revealed. Because what Jesus, of course, is stating quite obviously is that when Saul hurts Christians, Jesus feels it. And so as Saul pursues individuals and households, seeking to drag them off in chains for their trial and sentencing, for their punishment and perhaps even death, like Stephen. As he does that, Jesus feels every mark, every bruise, every graze, every insult. That seed when it is full formed in the heart of Paul, becomes an understanding that the church is the body of Christ. That the head of the body is Christ himself and that, and that he is able to process everything that is happening in his people just like the brain is able to process everything that is happening in the body. And when the... And when the the church feels something. Jesus is the one who responds and reacts. The body of Christ is the community of the saints. And so in that moment, Paul was transformed in two ways, both of which he really didn't understand at the time. It's impossible that he would, that he would fully comprehend what it was that was happening. The first thing that happened was that salvation came to him and he was personally transformed. The second thing was that he was converted to an understanding that the church is the community of Jesus. That the church is the body of Christ. Now, not many people today would anticipate someone becoming a Christian and having a revelation of what the church is all about in the moment that they become a Christian. And yet, the two great conversion stories in the New Testament, that of Peter and that of Paul, show us that it is so essential for us to understand what the church of Jesus Christ is all about because in the conversion of Peter and in the conversion of Paul, at the moment when they recognize what it is that's happening, they see the church for the first time because Jesus reveals it to them. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. On the basis of his confession that Jesus is the Messiah and that Jesus is the Son of God, Peter has revealed to him his identity. His identity is now the identity of Jesus, the rock. And beyond that, he realizes that Jesus is in the business of doing something. He's in the business of building a church with rocks like Peter. All of us, like living stones, are being built together to form a holy house, says Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul, as he is groveling in the dust, fallen from his mount, wondering where he was 
completely disorientated. He encounters the risen Lord Jesus and in that moment sees the church for the first time. Perhaps we should consider that a natural way of new birth is to see Jesus, see ourselves, and understand the church. Maybe that would deliver us from this radical individualism that so haunts and besets the church, that somehow we think that we attend as individuals and go home as individuals and really find ourselves largely disconnected from the body at large. One of the, one of the great gifts, I believe, of Apex is that the expression, the manifestation of the church in, in, in house churches and households is a way for us to naturally understand what it means to be born into the people of God. We're born again. But we're born into a people, into a family. And certainly in that moment, the seed of that revelation was given to Paul. But that's not the main thing that I think God wants to talk about today because I've spoken about it before and I've just taken time to re-emphasize it there. The thing that I want to look at today is what is the theology of the gospel that is revealed as Jesus manifests himself to Saul on the way to Damascus? What is it? What is the, what is the heart of the good news? If you'll turn with me to Galatians chapter 1, I think that we'll see Paul giving us something of an answer. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11. Now to place this in context, this is the first letter of Paul to the churches that he's planted. Now he is fulfilling the mission that Jesus has given him. He has gone with Barnabas to plant churches in, in Cyprus and in Pamphylia and then into the mountain region of Galatia. He's returned, and on his return, he has gone to Jerusalem with a gift for the church because there's been a prophecy by a man called Agabus that there will be a great famine in the land of Israel. And so he goes with a gift and shares the gift with great generosity to the church in Jerusalem. And James and the other leaders receive it. And whilst he's there, and we'll see this in a moment, he shares with them the gospel that he's been preaching to the Gentiles. He returns with great news that everyone who is a leader in Jerusalem agrees with him and Barnabas that Gentiles do not need to become Jews to be fully orbed fully formed children of God. But then some people decide that they don't agree with that. And they begin to go to the churches that Paul has planted and tells the churches that they need 
to have the men circumcised and then they need to have the men and women fulfill all of the religious requirements of the Old Testament and they need to fulfill all of the Jewish customs so that they can be fully, fully accepted as members of the people of God. And to that circumstance, Paul writes this letter. Verse 11 of Galatians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. You see, one of the things that, that the people were saying who were trying to disrupt and to destroy his work was that, was that Paul was a man who had just come up with his theology out of thin air. It was not a theology that was based in the Old Testament. It was not a theology based in the tradition of the Jews. It was not a theology that emerged out of the rabbinic teaching of the, um, of the gospel. I've got my microphone caught on my shirt. So oh, there it is. Thank you. Wow. I thought I was going to get pulled backwards then. These Britney Spears mics are a bit tricky for that. Um, I've got no idea what I was just saying. No, I don't. It's all right. Let, let me just have a little drink of water here and then I'll just kind of get back again. I thought I was being garroted then for a minute. The problem is, you see, when I look up into the balcony, the back of the microphone gets caught on the collar of my shirt and the little hook there and I kind of get stuck up there and I can't look right down here again. Mm. Ooh, that's good. That's much better. Great. So Paul writes to those circumstances. He's, he's saying, look, this is not something I came up with. This is something that came to me by revelation. Verse 12. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. So here we have the binocular vision. We have the Acts of the Apostles telling us that, that Paul has been transformed in his journey to Damascus. We hear of Ananias, whose name means the Lord is gracious. We hear of his conversation with Jesus and his reluctance to go and see this man who clearly had a terrible reputation, but he went and prayed with him and called him brother. Already, the transformation was, was something that had taken place in the heart of Paul. And in response to his prayer, the scales fall from Paul's eyes and he sees and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he's baptized immediately. Just like 
The Ethiopian eunuch is baptized immediately on his confession of faith. It's great that we've got baptisms coming up in church in the next few weeks. But honestly, if you lead someone to faith, baptize them. Find some water. There'll be some somewhere. Get it done. Because the natural way of new birth in the New Testament is confession of faith and then baptism immediately. You don't need to go through a baptism course. Even Chad agrees with me who runs it. Paul is baptized and immediately goes into Arabia. Now, you need to put together what it is that he says here and in various other places where he gives his testimony. But clearly... Paul is speaking in the synagogue in Damascus and then goes off into Arabia, into the, into the desert, the, the Nabataean kingdom of King Aratus and spends some time there. Of course, the desert is the place of revelation. The desert is the place of retreat. The desert is the place where historically and traditionally the people of God have, have gone to meet with God. And so Paul goes out into the desert and no doubt returns from time to time for necessary supplies and, and the, the things of life that will hold him together. And during that period of three years, all of the theology that is planted in his heart on the road to Damascus emerges. The gospel of Paul that has transformed the lives of millions upon millions was planted in the moment that he met Jesus. Because Jesus said this, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus of course is saying that the church is his body. But he's also saying this, that he and every believer are inextricably connected so that the identity of the believer and the identity of Jesus overlap. And whenever anything happens to the believer, Jesus experiences it. And whatever is true of Jesus is true of the believer. Because the believer is now in Christ, just as Christ is in them. Now, if you can, if you can just grasp this for a moment, it changes everything. It changes everything. All your institutionalized religious behavior is transformed into dust and ashes. All your fears of judgment, all your belief about guilt, and fear and the power of sin are utterly transformed 
and blown away by the wind of God's Spirit. If you can but grasp this one truth, that you are in Christ, just as Christ is in you. And in that moment, the seed of the greatest revelation of the gospel is planted in the heart of Paul. Paul goes on to explain what it is that happened. He went up to Jerusalem, saw the people who were reputed to be pillars of the church, and then, and then something happened that he didn't expect. Chapter 2, verse 11. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group, the group of people that were disrupting Paul's work. The other Jews joined him in that, in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led away. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Peter, you know you've tried all your life. You've been desperate on so many occasions because your heart is full of rebellion against God's law. Paul articulates it so well in Romans some years later when he says, the problem is I wouldn't have known what coveting was unless the law told me not to covet. And as soon as it said it, I began to think of it. It's like someone saying, don't think about elephants. As soon as they say it, that's all you can think about. He's saying to Peter, you know. Someone said, don't think about elephants, and that's all you can do. Because when you've read the law, you know you cannot be justified by fulfilling it in your own strength. And so you come to Christ and have faith in him. But why have faith in him? What's he going to do? Well, he'll forgive me every time I break the law. Yeah. Any more? I don't know. 
Well, let's read on then. Because if you don't know any more, you'll spend your life like the average Baptist in sin management every day. Wouldn't that be terrible? We don't want to be average Baptists, do we? Let's read on. Verse 17. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If we rebuild what I destroy, if I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I'm a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. What does that mean? It means this. If I try to hold it together, if I try to hold it together, it's because I know that if I don't hold it together, it all falls in pieces. Yeah? It's called sin management. I'm getting garroted again. This shirt is a real pain. Or maybe it's the microphone's a pain. If I try to rebuild that which I've destroyed, I recognize that the thing is broken. Correct? If I, if I sweep up all of the pieces of the broken mirror and try to put the, the broken pieces back in the frame, it's because I recognize that the mirror is broken. Yeah? If you, every day, come back and say, I'm just going to hold it together today. I'm not going to have those bad thoughts. And if I do have those bad thoughts, I'm going to try to talk about something else or think about something else or maybe sing a worship song. It's because you know that the perfect law of God is broken and can't be anything else. If I try to rebuild that which I've destroyed, I recognize that it is broken and broken by me. Now, if that's true, the best that we can possibly hope for is a management of sin every day, holding the pieces together and somehow praying that our life will end soon because of the stress of constantly, deliberately holding together that which can't be held together. Or you recognize that the law says you deserve to die because you broke the law. If you broke any part of it, you deserve to die. The law, the law told me that I should die. But if I die, then I die to all of my life, including the reality of the law that's in my life. Because you can't be half dead. You're either dead or you're alive. And if you're dead, you're dead to everything. Does everybody agree with that? 
So if the law tells me that what needs to happen is me die, and I do, then I'm dead to what? To everything, including the law. Are you with me? That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, you're dead to it. The law says you should die. And you say, yeah, but I'm not sure I am dead. Ah. Well, read on with me. I'll read verse 19 again. For through the law, the declaration of the law, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Every time you hurt a Christian, I feel it. Why? Because they and I are one. Everything that happens to them, I feel. Everything that has happened to me, they benefit from. Well, what does that mean? It means this. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who fulfilled the whole law in himself, took the penalty for you breaking the law and died. And it wasn't just a substitution of his life for yours. It was an identification of his life with yours so that you and I actually died with him. And if we died with him, then everything that holds us, that held us, that captures us, has gone. It's gone. I have been, past tense. I have been. I'm not being. I have been crucified with Christ. It's gone. Now, I know that some of you are sitting there thinking, yeah, I've heard all this before. It's interesting, good stuff. Honestly, it's so way beyond good stuff. It's, it's almost like too good to be true news. But unlike all other news that's too good to be true that can't possibly be that good, this really is. Because... It changes the way that we live. It takes all of the burden, all of the stress, all of the sin management of holding the mirror that's broken together and says, I'm not going to do that anymore. Verse 21, I do not set aside 
the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If you can be a better person by trying a bit harder, then it was pointless Jesus going to the cross. I'll say it again. If you could be a better person by you trying a little harder, it was pointless Jesus going to the cross. And if you don't get it, you haven't yet got the gospel. You haven't understood the good news. Because if you're still pushing water up a hill with a rake, which is what sin management's all about, trying a little harder, being a little bit better, maybe I can do five minutes more prayer this week, maybe I can remember that other verse, maybe, maybe, maybe. If you think that you are a better person for it, then you misunderstand what better and good really is. Because if the mirror is cracked, it's broken. It's broken. And you can't put it back together again. You don't know how to put it back together again, and neither do I. There is no way that we can put it back together again. It doesn't matter how much you hold it together, it's broken. And if it's broken, then my friend, let me tell you, it's broken for always. If you could become a better person by trying a bit harder, Jesus died for nothing. Because Jesus died to deliver us from that. Jesus died to rescue us from that. Jesus died to liberate us from that. Jesus died so that all of the penalty of the broken mirror that you hold up and see yourself in, all of it is gone. It's all gone. And it means that Jesus has paid not simply the penalty, but Jesus has taken your life and he has embraced it into his own and he's taken it to the grave with him. And now that old life is dead. Paul puts it like this in another place. He says, I don't do the things that I want to do and I do do the things that I, I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's the picture. In Roman times, when a man committed a particularly heinous murder, they would take the body of the murdered individual and they would tie it to the murderer. Leg to leg, arm to arm, torso to torso, face to face. And they would force the murderer to walk with the dead body to their place 
of execution. You do it every day. When you dig up that old body and you say, I'm going to just try a little bit harder today. I'm going to be a better person today, Jesus. I'm going to live for you today, Jesus. I didn't yesterday, but I am going to today. And then you get to the end of the day and you go, oh, okay, well, try again tomorrow. And so every day, the dead body gets put back in its grave. And every morning, you dig it up again. And you tie it on leg to leg, arm to arm, torso to torso, face to face. And you look your death in the eye every day. And the stink of it is called religion. And the effect of it is ghastly. Because nobody believes somebody walking around with a dead body is good news. It's really bad news. But here is the good news. Jesus took your old life and put it to death on the cross once and for all. There it is. And you don't have to dig it up again. You don't have to dig it up every day. You're free. And now I can hear the voices in the back of your mind say, yeah, yeah, but I mean, oh, what's going to happen then if I'm really free? What am I going to do? Well, you're going to learn. You're going to learn. You're going to learn how to do the thing that Jesus says you should do through the voice of Paul. You're going to learn how to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Just think of that. I'm not going to walk in the flesh. I'm not going to walk in my, in my Christian flesh. I'm not going to walk in my dead man's flesh. I'm not going to walk in any flesh. I'm going to walk by the spirit every day. Because by the Spirit, I'll put to death the misdeeds of the body. By the Spirit, I'll see the fruit of the Spirit, the love and the joy and the peace. And by the Spirit, I'll learn to keep in step with the Spirit. And I'll hear the heartbeat of heaven. And I'll walk daily with God. And I'll stop worrying about the sins that held me captive yesterday, and I'll start thinking about the things that the Spirit wants to open up to me today. And of course, there's forgiveness for our foolishness, our waywardness, our failure, and our sin. But it's not the object that has been dealt with. The object is now living the life of Christ in the power of the Spirit. That's the focus because it's the good news. 
Instead of the, the, the life of, of a Christian being, being dragging around this thing that we've had with us for all these years, now it becomes something that is a life of liberation, a life that is genuinely good news. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I didn't receive this from any human being, says Paul. I received this directly as a revelation from Jesus Christ himself. Now listen, so many here have lived the life of a believer without knowing the liberation without knowing the liberation of the life in the Spirit. So many have been godly, good Christians moving around the sins in their life, trying to make more space for God. Today is a day for us to consider afresh the gospel, the good news. Today is a day when we can say, if Jesus has fully identified with me, he has taken everything to the cross of mine. And that means that everything of his that I see in the resurrection is mine. He takes all that we are to the cross and he gives all that he is in the resurrection. It's a different way of living, isn't it? It's a different way of understanding. It's a different way of functioning. It's a different way of interacting with one another. Because now what we do is we encourage one another and spur one another on to good works. Instead of our conversation always surrounding about the things that we've done wrong, we now focus on all that God wants to do through us in the power of the resurrection that fills us by the Spirit of God. Now, when people see that, they'll say, how do I get to hang out with those people? I like those people. I want to be around people like that because they look like good news to me. They look like people who have a new life, not an old life that's tied to their limbs every day. And so there it is. The opportunity afresh to consider the good news that Paul received on the road to Damascus. He didn't pray the sinner's prayer. He didn't go through the four spiritual laws. He just got chosen by Jesus. Just like you. He was claimed by Jesus. He said, you're mine. 
And from now on, whenever anybody hurts you, they hurt me. And from now on, everything that's happened to me has already happened to you. And everything that's true of me is true of you because you are a son of God. You are a child of the Father. You are the inheritor of the kingdom. You are a co-heir with me. You are the residents of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the living God. Not just me. You and me, we've become one. And it means that you now have all that is true of me. And if that isn't good news, I literally have no idea what is. So, dear ones, let's get it together, shall we? Let's stop this striving. Let's stop this pursuit of human perfection. If you don't think Jesus is perfect, you've misunderstood who Jesus is. Of course he's perfect. And he's given you his identity. It's all done. Obedience is simply living up to what God has already done. Not trying to make something happen that hasn't already been achieved. It's all been achieved. Now we just kind of grow into it. Sometimes we do good at growing into it and sometimes we don't. But we're, we're continuing to grow into it. And that's what God wants for you today. He wants you to be free of the chains of religion that hold you back and prevent you from walking in the Spirit and keeping step with Him. And so as the worship team come up and they sing this final song, my encouragement to you is this. Do business today. Do business today. Choose today not to carry that cadaver any longer. Choose this day to leave religion in the grave. Choose this day to receive all of the benefits of the sacrifice of Jesus. Choose this day to receive the power of the resurrection so that you can live the godly life. You don't get more power by being more holy. You get to be more holy by receiving the power. And if you can see that little turn in your heart today, it'll change everything. And if you're wrestling with it right now, then during this song, my encouragement to you is use the altar. Present yourselves as living sacrifices and come and say, Jesus, I'm still wrestling with this. Do this work in me, Lord. Transform my mind that I'm no longer forced into the mold of the world that tells me that I've got to work harder to do better. Liberate me, Lord. And don't be ashamed 
Because this goes on in the heart of every believer at some stage. So in this moment, as we sing, you come. The prayer team are already primed to come and pray with you. They'll just pray over you. They're not going to say anything weird or do anything creepy. They're just going to pray over you. Let's pray. Lord, it's almost impossible for us to comprehend what it is that you've done. But in your death, you took us to death with you. Lord, we have been crucified with you because you have fully identified with us. And Lord, the only transaction that is now needed is that we fully identify with you. So today, Lord, I pray for those who've never heard this. I pray, Lord, for those who've heard it afresh. I pray, Lord, for those who've heard it but have never quite got it. Thank you, Lord, that this not it doesn't depend on us doing anything. This is just you. And so we receive your work. We want to live the resurrected life in the power of the Spirit. We pray it, Jesus, for your glory and in your name. And all God's people say. So you come. Some of the faithful hearts have already started moving. You should do that too.